turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. We are starting a new series today, Uh, Exodus chapter 1, I'm sorry, but we are going to read two chapters. The word of the Lord, follow along, Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Jacob was already, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, And you see them on their birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill them. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live? The the, the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall not let but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman, woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. But when she could not hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, and she said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women 
to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he, was, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the, to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Father, we ask that as we dive into the book of Exodus, that you show us this is not merely an old story locked away, but this is a story that is living and powerful, that shapes our very existence. Teach us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. It was Frederick Douglass who said, it is not the light that we need, but fire. It is not a gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. Frederick Douglass, who never actually knew his own age, was born a slave in Talbot County, was brought to Baltimore City around the age of 12. He's a man that certainly knew slavery. And what he was saying here, what he is saying for us still today, is that the end of slavery is going to be a radical change. There is no small remedy. There is a darkness to slavery that penetrates the soul of the enslaved. The dehumanization the loss of individuality, the loss of pride, the loss of 
confidence, the destruction of the soul. A few years ago, I listened to a beautiful monologue by an African-American woman who, right in the middle of her monologue, burst into this old, singing this old lament, a song of lament, which the African slaves would sing in the fields. And I remember the the, the refrain, the, the phrase that kept repeating throughout this song of lament. And I wish I could sing it to you, but I'm not going to. But it was beautiful. It was beautiful in that you could hear the tears behind it. It was that kind of beautiful. And the words were, How long, O Lord? Over and over and over. How how long? How long, O Lord? Slavery will not end by any small means. It will take an earthquake, it will take a storm. It will take thunder, and it will take fire. Exodus is a book of fire. I'm excited to get into Exodus. The gospel to the New Testament is what Exodus is to the Old Testament. Old Testament, understanding of the gospel comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus shapes who we are. It shapes the very foundation. It lays the foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. it, 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 It sets the framework for our own existence. Exodus shows us who we once were. Exodus shows us who Jesus is. And Exodus shows us who we are now. Exodus is a book of fire. But Exodus begins in the dark. And that's where we begin this morning. Now let me give you some context before we get into it. Do you all know of a man named Abraham? There's a man named Abraham, all right? Most of us at least know the name, if not the story, of who Abraham was. Abraham was a pagan that God called and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, a covenant is essentially a promise in relationship. Two people coming together, making a promise. In this case, what is called the Abrahamic covenant. Everybody say it together. Abrahamic covenant. This is what we would call a covenant of grace. Which means that in this covenant, God is making one-way promises to Abraham Abraham ain't making any promises to God, all right? One way, God to Abraham, and guess what? There are no obligations on Abraham's end in order to fulfill, in order to believe or to receive the blessings of the covenant, which means it's a covenant of grace. It means that God is going to do all of the work required and that this is an eternal covenant that will last forever. It's a promise, all right? So if you're Abraham, listen. It's a promise that you will receive, period. There is nothing that can change this promise. Now, as the story goes on, Abraham, and he's an old dude, all right? Old dude's, you know, around 100 years old. They typically don't give birth, all right? Uh, or give old dudes never give birth. <laughs> they typically don't 
impregnate a woman, all right? Well, Abraham, miracle, Sarah. A boy was born. Promise fulfilled. Isaac, right? Oh, before I get into this, I should tell you what the, the covenant was. It's in Genesis chapter 12. I've got it right here, the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is the promise. Listen to this. This is so important for Exodus. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land, everybody say land, land, that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your, great na- gr- your name great, and you will be a blessing, and you will bless those, who, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is the promise given by grace to Abraham. Two big things that we got to remember from that promise. Number one, that there is going to be a great people that comes through his seed, a family that comes from him, and this will be a people of blessing, and they will be a people, number two, that reside in a, you said it, in a land, which became known as the promised land. Now, Isaac is born. Isaac gives birth, his wife gives birth to a son named Jacob. Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. You see where this story is going? Jacob gives birth to 12 boys. One of them is named Joseph. Gets into it with his brothers. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Now Joseph is in Egypt. Now, through a miraculous turn of events, Joseph becomes famous in Egypt. He's a celebrity, lifted up to the point where he, he, he meets up with his family again and he says, Let's move here. This is it. And he moves all of his brothers and he moves Jacob slash Israel into Egypt to take care of them and to live with them. Twelve sons which will become 12 tribes, who will become known as the Israelites after Jacob. They're going to be there a total of 430 years, but at this point in the story, for now, they have no clue. And things are just about to get pretty bad. So this is where our story picks up today. Three generations since Abraham has received the covenant, the promise from God. Now, all they have right now, as they're living in the land of Egypt, and as they're having babies and their families growing, all they have are the, is the promise of God. All they have is the hope that God will be faithful to His promise. That God will be a promise keeper. That's all they have. Meaning, if God is not faithful to, their, to His promise, they have absolutely nothing. They are living by faith. Now these two chapters that we're getting into today are a roller coaster. At once it seems like things are good and the promises seem to be fulfilled. God's promises seem to be true. God is faithful. But then there's like this turn and a slap in the face of discouragement and disillusionment and pain. Let me show it to you. There's, there's, there's four scenes in these two chapters. And each scene is this turning point of promises fulfilled and then slap in the face, 
sadness, pain, and discouragement. Let me show you, scene one. There in verse seven, we see that the people are multiplying. Sounds like fulfillment of the promise, doesn't it? I will give you a great people. And here they are, like little bunny rabbits, popping out all over the place, right? And they're growing like crazy. I mean, who knows how many kids everybody had. But these were some big families that were quickly reproducing. They were multiplying. So things are good. It's sort of like, yeah, we see it. God is faithful to his promise. Here comes a big, a big family, a great nation. I see it. Nothing's going to stop us now. God is being true, right? Everything's good, right? Wrong. Here comes the big scene two, slap in the face. Slap your neighbor. No, just kidding. <laughs> Verse 8. Verse 8, there's a new king that comes into power. And this new king in verse 10, he deals shrewdly. Everybody say shrewdly. That's a good word. He deals shrewdly with the people. Guys, what this means is at this point, things get really bad. We sort of get lost in the narrative, and and time just kind of passes by. We don't know how many years go by, uh, but this this king is, is dead set on making Israel dead. All right? Verse 9, he says there, there are too many of them. They're growing too quickly. They're all over the place. Everywhere I look, I see a, a Hebrew or an Israelite. Verse 10, what if they harm us? Xenophobia. That's the fear of the foreigner. The fear of someone that's different from you. You know, the root of all xenophobia is sin. What if they outnumber us? What if they take over? What, 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 if they, what if they fill up our schools? What if they take our jobs? What if they don't learn English? Sound familiar? Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah. Dehumanization. To the point here where, where the Israelites, the Hebrews, are enslaved. He says, we just can't handle them. We're going to enslave them. Has God failed now? But you say, no, but where is he? I mean, these are the people of promise. I mean, let's, let's put ourselves into their situation. Where is he? They're enslaved in this moment. They are hurting in this moment. Where is God? Now, it gets worse. Verses 15 through 22, we see infanticide, which is the killing of infants. First, he goes to the Hebrew midwives, and, and they fear God, so they're not going to do anything. And then Pharaoh, the king, he just simply says, all right, I'm going to make a decree. Every Hebrew male baby thrown in the Nile. The Nile River, what would be the source of life for the Egyptians, is becoming a source of death for the Israelites. Seeking to exterminate the people through destroying a generation of men. Again, has God failed? Where is God in this moment? Now, chapter 2 turns into a new scene, and, and we see now uh, sort of the roller coasters going up. Things look good all of a sudden. There's a, there's a Savior born, a little baby is born, and his life is spared. 
through kind of an interesting turn of events, kind of ironic, he's put into the Nile. But the Nile becomes, for him, life. As he floats through the Nile and, and is found by Pharaoh's daughter, he comes into Pharaoh's house. And Shakespeare couldn't have written a better story in, in, in that uh, the mother, his own mother, is chosen to be the, the, the nurse to raise the boy. Hope. Things are good. All of a sudden, we've got a guy in, in, in the White House, right? All of a sudden, we've got a guy living in Pharaoh's house. We've got an inside man. All of a sudden, we've got the, the ear of Pharaoh, and things can turn around for us. Well, scene four. Moses loses his temper, kills somebody, and now Pharaoh is trying to kill him. You ever had this moment where things... Like, you've worked hard, you've put things in place, things are moving along. It's like everything is where it should be. And then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, all of your progress, everything that you've been doing is just gone. Back to square one. This has got to have been the feeling. Loses his temper, kills an Egyptian, and now he is in exile. Now Moses runs out of Egypt. Moses is a refugee. Verses 16 through 22, it's sort of this little biographical parentheses where, where Moses is out there and he meets a woman and her name's Zipporah and they get married and they have a, have a child. And, and, and chapter 2 ends with Moses out there. Out, out in the country. The people of promise in here. Has God forgotten them? I mean, there's a dark ending to, the, to this, this story at this point. It's kind of a depressing introduction. Where is God? And will God be faithful to his promise? Now, first, what does this story mean for us today? It's, it's not merely an, uh, an old interesting piece of history that's locked away in, uh, in the history books. But rather, this story, as I already said, it frames our own existence. Slavery in Egypt in the Bible is always referred to when, when, when we're talking about sin. When we see slavery in Egypt, the Bible understands that to mean sin. Slavery to sin. Now, this is a, kind of a strange concept for some of us because we don't necessarily feel like, like, like slave, uh, we were enslaved to sin, right? Or that you are currently a slave to sin. We don't feel that, right? We feel free. We don't, this is sort of like the, uh, the slavery where you don't feel the shackles on your wrists and on your feet. But let me just explain it this way. Try this, all right? Try for one hour to love God with all of your heart. Don't let one impure thought come into your mind. Nothing selfish for one hour. See if you can do it. You've already failed, haven't you? Right when I said impure thought. You know, Frederick Douglass, he went on to say, I did not know that I was a slave until I found out I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. Well, that's the slavery of sin. It's subtle and it's tricky. 
It's not until we really try to be obedient, we really try to be holy, we really try to love God that we realize we can't. I'm a slave. The tyranny of sin, it's a real empire. And it's an empire of darkness. Now there are three takeaways from this story that we need to understand for our life today. Number one, the empire of darkness seeks to destroy you. At the end of World War II, it was discovered that in addition to the Jews in concentration camps, prisoners, American prisoners of war were also held in prison camps or concentration camps. This one particular camp in particular, I just said particular too many times, when they discovered the camp, Those POWs who were still alive in the concentration camp, skin and bones, laying on their beds with fleas jumping all over the bodies in in maggot-infested barracks, what they discovered was that these men worked 18 hours a day with very little food, sometimes no food or water. The strategy of the Nazis for these POW concentration camps was to kill them through work. To dig out this tunnel and to just work them, work, 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 constantly, without nutrition, until they died. Well, this is actually an old strategy. This is what Egypt was doing with the Israelites. We're going to exterminate through slavery, through working. And this is the strategy of sin. Sin wants to not just enslave you, not just, not just get you to serve some particular sin. Sin wants to destroy you, wants to kill you. You know, I say the empire of darkness, the empire of sin. Because it is an empire, just as Egypt was. An empire seeks to dominate. An empire seeks to take over land, as much land as possible, to take over the world if possible. Sin, the empire of darkness, seeks to take over every aspect of your life. Sin seeks to get into your mind and take over. Sin seeks to take over your, your, your bed. Sin seeks to take over your heart. Sin seeks to take over your soul. And sin seeks to absolutely destroy you so that, so that you may be gone. Do you realize that, uh, you know, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, as we meet together in small groups or in, in friendships, and we talk about sin, whenever that word sin comes up, do you realize that we're talking about war? We're talk, when we talk about sin, and you confess sins, and, and we remind of the fact that we are forgiven, we're talking about war here. This is a matter of life or death. The empire of darkness wants every young man in this city to believe that his only hope is on the corner. The empire of darkness wants everybody who's ever had a setback after setback after setback to say, forget God. What has he ever done to me? The empire of darkness wants every married man to believe that sex with another woman would be more exciting. The empire of darkness wants every 
single woman to believe that she's not going to have any identity or, or sense of satisfaction until she gets married. And we could go on. The empire of darkness wants to capture your imagination, your heart, your mind, and destroy you. When we gather for worship here on Sundays, it feels pretty ordinary, right? We sing songs, I stand up here and talk, it feels very ordinary. But the reality is, is week after week, we are coming together and going to war. When, when, when you see each other, when you see another brother or sister, do you realize that the devil is on the prowl against them, seeking to destroy them? When you have the opportunity to have coffee with somebody, do you realize the war that you're getting into right now as you seek to help this, this comrade in arms? When you see me up here every week, do you realize the devil is on the prowl trying to destroy me? We are at war, friends. I remember a couple years ago I was trying to help uh, someone, a friend, try to understand why it is that we need to be so concerned about sharing the gospel with other people. You know, why not just focus on helping people meet needs? Why not just focus on, as a church, you know, rebuilding something? Why do we have to have the, sharing the gospel? Why does it have to be such a big push? And so as we're talking about it and trying to find words to explain it, he sort of, like a light bulb turns on, and he says, oh, wait, I, I think I see it. It's like we're going in and rescuing citizens of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's exactly, and I've been using that ever since. That's exactly it. This is war against the empire that wants to destroy you. But secondly, this is the second thing we have to understand from this text. The empire of darkness, while it seeks to destroy you, the empire of darkness cannot destroy God's promises. A few years ago, I was supposed to meet a friend who lives in D.C. We were going to meet halfway in Laurel, which is a little closer to him. <laughs> you know, these D.C. people, they get us every time. Well, I'll come to Laurel. Wait a second, it was 45 minutes. Well, uh, it was uh, Monday morning for breakfast. We were supposed to meet there. And uh, Monday morning, I'm sitting at home, and I get a call and I, from my buddy. And I think to myself, oh, shoot. I'm supposed to be having breakfast with him right now. And, you know, I didn't answer it, of course. <laughs> and then I had to kind of think, and then I got, gathered myself, called him back. <laughs> I was like, dude, I, I am so sorry. You know, he's sitting at the restaurant. Poor guy. I drove all of, what, 20 minutes? And, um, and I'm at home. Now, listen, my, the promises I make... Uh, will sometimes, hopefully not often, but sometimes will fail you because of who they're attached to. But the promises that God makes will never fail you because of who they're attached to. You know, it's the very nature of who the promise giver is that determines whether or not the promise will be fulfilled. And God is a Holy God, there is no sin in God. There is no darkness in God. And so if God makes a promise, God will keep his promise. 
Let me show you a couple examples here of how we see this happening. First, we see this guy Pharaoh. Do you realize that all throughout the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is never named? Now, this is pretty remarkable. Pharaoh is never named. The king who thought he was over the entire world doesn't make it into the word of God that lasts forever. But who is named in this text? Well, there are two lowly Hebrew midwives that make it in. They're named. Why are they named? It's because they feared God and not the emperor. They did not care what the empire could do to them. When Pharaoh demands that these midwives kill the Israelite babies, they refuse. Shephora, Pua, their names make it in to the word of God that will remain forever because they feared God. Well, this is just an example of how God's promises endure. God raised up these women. And then in verse 20, it says that the people multiplied. They grew strong. So even in the face of the opposition, as Pharaoh came against them and tried to squash them, the people continued to grow stronger. This is the way God works. God works through opposition. Verse 21, it says that even the midwives themselves are blessed with large families. The irony. Pharaoh cannot stop the work of God. Let me go on and show you something else. The babies that are thrown into the Nile. The Nile is to be the place of death for the babies, but Pharaoh cannot stop the work and the promises of God. And there's a baby that's put into the Nile. And this baby finds its way into Pharaoh's own home. And this baby will become the deliverer of God's people. Why? Because Pharaoh said, put the kids in the water. And God said, fine, here's one for you. God moves. He works in the face of opposition. When the empire strikes, when darkness rears its head and slams its weight against us, God turns it all around and uses it for your good and for His glory. Let me explain it to you this way. Imagine you saw a centipede crawling across the floor. And you're like, oh, yeah, a centipede. Huh? So you're going to kill it. And so you step on the centipede. And you feel its, you feel its body like become disjointed underneath your shoe. And then you lift up your foot and you realize that every one of those, what, 50 parts or 100, how many parts a centipede has? Just go with me here. They've all been divided They've all grown heads, additional legs, and they're all, now you've got 50 centipedes that you just, and now you stomp on all of them, you, you step on all the centipedes, and you stand up, and, and you see that they've divided, you've got a thousand centipedes now that you've created. This is essentially what's happening in this text. 
The more the enemy comes and opposes God's people, the more God's people grow. The stronger they get. See, the enemy thought he had you when you slipped up and looked at porn last week. Yet God turned it as you were crushed under the sorrow of of, of that, and you turned in repentance to God, and you found more grace and more love from the Lord than you've ever experienced, and you grew more than any other time you can ever remember, and God just took that moment and slapped it in the face of the enemy. That's just an example. But this is how it works for us as believers. Whenever the enemy strikes, God turns it, and he uses it for his glory. What is a slap in the face to us ends up being a slap in the face to the empire. The empire of darkness cannot destroy God's promises. Four times throughout this text, we see that the people multiply. That's something that we ought to be picking up on. At times, friends, it feels it feels like the enemy is going to win. Your friends mock Jesus. We see Syrian refugees, babies washed up on the shore. Babies in our own land are, are, are killed in clinics. Your own heart is so prone to sin. Your own heart is, is so prone to, to wander away from God, yet... The promise comes to us that the church of God will prevail. So hell makes its onslaught attack against God's church, but the promise comes that the church will turn and attack the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not be able to survive the attack of the church, and the the church will enter into the kingdom of darkness and grab the souls of those trapped within the kingdom of death and the kingdom of sin and bring them into the kingdom of light. The opposite of what's happening here would have been this. Abraham would have never had a baby Isaac. Israel would have never made it out of the land of Egypt. Christ would have never come. If he did come, Christ would have stayed in the grave. But you see, God's promises throughout the Scripture are sure. They are grace. They are coming. They are fulfilled, and they are going to be fulfilled. The enemy did not prevail when God opened your eyes to the gospel. When God opened your heart and and you saw the goodness of Jesus Christ, your Savior, the enemy did not prevail then, did he? When you saw the Christ, the Deliverer, who also, during his infancy, survived a slaughter of the innocents, the Deliverer, who also went through the river, the Jordan River, in the river and out of the river, When the enemy opened your eyes to Christ, he did not prevail, did he? When God freed your heart from the bondage of sin, when you woke and the chains fell off and your heart was free and you you rose and you went forth and you followed after Christ, the enemy didn't prevail then, did he? The enemy 
has been already defeated in your life. Secondly, the enemy is being defeated in your life. And thirdly, the enemy will be one day forever defeated. One day Christ will return and we will be forever freed from the tyranny of sin. Right now, we're freed from the bondage of it. Our hearts are no longer enslaved, yet we're still in the presence of it. The chains, they're not on our wrists anymore, but yet we still trip over the chains, don't we? Sometimes we actually still take the chains and put them back on our wrists. But one day, friends, we will be freed from the chains. We will be freed from the presence of the empire. There will be no sign that the empire ever existed. Have you been delivered? Do you know this deliverance? Do you know this deliverer? Jesus Christ, do you know the Christ who died for your sins so that you might be forgiven and stand before God? Do you know the deliverer who rose from the dead? Has God opened your eyes to the tyranny of sin? And if he has, friend, let him open your eyes to the beauty of his promises. For he will keep his promises. One way that we can apply this as a church is as, as a family, brothers and sisters of one another, when we're talking with each other, share the promises of God with each other. So for instance, someone uh, shares with you some anxiety problems. They're worried. They're, they're struggling with anxiety. Don't just say, hey, you know, buck on up. Get over it. No, Matthew six twenty six. share a promise of God. Look at the birds of the air. They neither so, uh, toil nor, nor reap. Yet God takes care of them. How much more will he take care of you? It's a promise of God. He will, be, he will be true. Or maybe you are speaking with a friend who's afraid of death. And we don't say, well, look, just look on the bright side. You're, you're not dead yet, right? <laughs> are you breathing? My goodness. No, not helpful. Romans 14, 7 through 9, a great promise of God. If we live to the Lord it's to the Lord. And if we die, it's to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Well, there's a promise of God that we can share with one another that will be true. The enemy of darkness cannot destroy God's promises. Thirdly, we're going to close with this. The enemy of darkness will be destroyed by God's faithfulness. So I love the way chapter 2 ends. We see Moses out there. He's off in the country getting hitched, all right? A nice little rural farmside wedding. Starting a new life, starting a family, starting over. The deliverer, friends, out there. The people of God, the Israelites, in here. And what it says here is, as it closes in verse 23, is the people of Israel groaned, and they cried. That's actually four words in the Hebrew. That's translated into two words. Groaned, groaned, cried, cried, however you want to say it, this is bad. This ends with weeping, it ends with sadness, it ends with pain. They groaned, they cried. Why? Because of their slavery. How long, O Lord? Friends, we are the people of promise today. 
We have been also given promises of God that will remain and that will be proven faithful. One day Jesus will return. And we will be forever freed from the shackles of sin and death, which still trip us, back, trip, trip us up. One day there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. Yet, here's the reality. Three-year-old Syrian refugees end up washed up on the shore. How long, O oh Lord? We have siblings, cousins who died. Some of you have had siblings and cousins murdered. How long, O oh Lord? Parents who age and pass. How long, O oh Lord? Your temper flares up again. You thought you were over it. How long, O oh Lord? You thought you finally arrived at humility and pride strikes. How long, O oh Lord? We see divisions among Christians and in the church. We understand that the church is to be powerful, but it doesn't feel that way. How long, O oh Lord? Churches, we see, have traded the, the, the one gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for a feel-good, do-good, self-help kind of gospel. How long, O oh Lord? Neighbors of ours turning to mosques, turning to a religion that will never satisfy, a religion without grace, a religion of works that will only leave people in their guilt, and we cry, how long, O Lord? Will God fail us? Will this darkness last forever? Will the empire of darkness forever destroy the work of God? That is really the climactic question that we come to here. That's the question that we're left with. Will God be true? Can we trust Him? Will he remain faithful to the promises that he has made his people? And the resolution comes in verse 24 with this line, and God remembered his covenant. That's the point of the text. God did not forget the promises that he made to Abraham about these people, about you and I. God has not forgotten His covenant. Family, we are further along now than they were there. We've seen the Messiah. We've seen the cross. We've, we've, we've heard and we've believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Salvation comes for us in the same way it came for them. And that is simply this, trusting in the promises of God. Trusting that what he says he will do. Trust that if, if God says that Jesus died for every single one of your sins, believe it. Believe that the enemy is indeed gone and that you have no more guilt and that you can stand before God and be accepted into his presence. Trust that. 
If God says the way of Jesus will bring fullness into your life, that he is right. Trust that. If God says the church will prevail against all odds, trust that the church will indeed prevail. Trust that if God says that Christ is coming again to put an end to death, that he will come again and that the promised land will be established on earth forever, living in the reign of Jesus Christ. I think Frederick Douglass was right. We need more than just simply a light bulb. We need fire. We need thunder. We need a whirlwind. We need Christ. The consuming fire who entered into darkness, who entered into death and shook it up, and we are finally free. The Lord remembers. The Lord knows. Family, no matter what you're going through, the Lord remembers. The Lord knows. No matter how guilty you feel about sin, The Lord remembers. The Lord knows. No matter how much Satan has been lying to you about whether or not God loves you, the Lord remembers. And the Lord knows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the cross. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And we ask that as we have been reminded of the fact that we have been freed from the shackles of slavery, that we would walk in this new life in light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.